Hello and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. There are evidences throughout the Bible that clearly show that those who surrender to God prosper in His presence and those who forsake Him suffer in His absence. When a nation forsakes God, it risks being gripped by terror from enemies, as we see in Jeremiah. But wherever God is worshipped and obeyed, it is there that He always sets His throne. What does that mean for us? Let's find out as Dr. Corbett opens Jeremiah chapter 49, I will set my throne in Elam. I can imagine in my dream someone coming up to me and saying, Pastor, when are you going to preach on I will set my throne in Elam on a windy day? Well, I'm glad you asked. Today is that day. I will set my throne in Elam on a windy day. Now, I'm going to do what I tell preachers not to do. I'm going to tell you that as I go through the book of Jeremiah and I map it out and I go, this is where we're going, this is how we're going to get there, and this is where we're going to end up. I, I looked at this and, and I've and I, I got to tell you, before doing my research for this, and I've spent the best part of a week researching this, I knew very little, in fact, I'm going to just say it, I knew nothing about Elam, no idea about Elam. And as I'm looking at this passage, I'm thinking, I said to Kim, I said, i got, I got no idea. I just, what on it? Why would Jeremiah bother speaking to the people of Elam? Why would he take God's sacred word and apply these half dozen verses to a people that most of us have never heard of? Why would God put that in his eternal word? The one thing he says in the Psalms that he has elevated above his very name is his word, and this is in it. Why is it there? And that's my quest, and that's been my quest all week. Me and this passage have been having a wrestle all week, and I've been headlocking it. I've been throwing it to the ground. I've been telling it, give up your meaning. Give up your application for us today, because I've got to understand, Jeremiah, why did you speak to Elam? And what on earth is this about setting up a throne on a windy day? So let's see where we go, shall we? Let's come on this journey now. Elam, they were an ancient civilization. In fact, they're first mentioned way back in the early chapters of Genesis. In fact, Elam, the person Elam, was one of the sons of Shem. And you remember Shem, Ham, Japheth, the three sons of Noah... Shem was, a, was one of the good sons. And so the, the Elamites, you would think, had, had a, a bit of a history of, of maybe understanding God. And, and the, the amazing thing about the Elamites is that they were never essentially idolatrous. It's a strange thing that in that region of uh, Elam and Persia, in that area there, they actually were largely monotheist. What does monotheist mean? One God. And in fact, during the time when the people of Jerusalem were taken into Babylon, at which time Elam was kind of a part of the Babylonian territory, so it was down in Persia for a bit of it, um, around about that time something was going on. And it was a guy by the name of, a young guy by the name of Zoroaster, who saw the surrounding idolatry of his people 
And he said, this doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that you could make something out of wood or stone or clay, put it up on a pedestal and worship it. That just doesn't make sense to me. And he went out into the wilderness and went on a quest to really find out if there really was a God and if that God would speak to him. And the remarkable thing is that God, he claims, did reveal himself to him, that essentially he was light and he was fire, the pictures that God gave this guy Zoroaster, and that one day he would send his son to the world to be born of a 15-year-old virgin girl. And that you were to look for the signs in the heavens of when that happened. And when it did happen, you were to go there and welcome him to the planet. So we read in Matthew chapter 2 that wise men came from the east when they saw the star in the sky and came and presented gifts to the Christ child. They were Zoroastrians. Interesting territory. Very interesting territory. So the Elamites were an ancient civilization. They, as you can see, right next to Babylon, they were cousins of, in effect. And they became what's called auxiliaries to Babylon, which meant it's, it's kind of like, I guess, the Anzacs. You know, New Zealand, that little place Australians like to call ours. Um, it's kind of that relationship. And so the Elamites were a part of the Babylonian army and during that time they were party to the destruction of Jerusalem. So the Elamites came in with the Babylonian army on the two or depending on how you count, three waves of attack that Babylon had against Jerusalem. Now why is that important? Because the first time Babylon came in, Nebuchadnezzar came in, there was a king. There was a king in Jerusalem. His name was Jeconiah. And one of the things that kings or rather emperors like to do, and the difference between a king and an emperor is rank, an emperor has kings under him, is what they like to do is exert their emperorness and depose a king and put another king in. And that's exactly what happened. He deposed Jeconiah, took him back to Babylon and made Jeconiah's uncle the king, Mataniah, and called him Zedekiah because kings also like to do that as well. It's a kingly thing. Which, by the way, New Testament, you have been called... Cephas, reed that easily blows in the wind. From now on, you'll be called Peter, the rock that stands firm. Jesus did that, which makes Jesus a king. So we have the opening verse. If you're in chapter 49, please, of Jeremiah, and we're going to be looking from verse 34... And this is the judgment on Elam, the prophecy to Elam. So reading from verse 34, it says this. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning Elam. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah. Now, what you need to understand is that we've already been looking at prophecies that Jeremiah is giving way down the track. I mean, Jeremiah, when, so he's telling us, I'm giving you this prophecy now. But you need to know 
that I actually got this prophecy, as it says, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. Daniel would have been on the streets of Jerusalem hearing someone not much older than him prophesying these things. He would have heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Jeremiah was possibly 10, maybe 10 years older than the very young Daniel when he was taken away in what we just saw Nebuchadnezzar describe. So Daniel may have been about 15. He's separated from homeland. He's separated from country, everything familiar to him. He's taken away from parents. He goes to Babylon and he's offered as much of everything that he wants. And we know the story. I've already done Daniel, but I need you to see this. Daniel held fast to God in the midst of almost, I would think, overwhelming temptation to not. All right. So when Jeremiah is giving this prophecy is, is perhaps another 40, 50 years. He's saying, oh, by the way, this word came to me during the reign or when, when this guy, Mattanai, who was made Zedekiah, became king. So you, so you got that time frame. This will become really important in a moment. All right, we're in verse 35. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam. Now remember they were a military auxiliary to Babylon, the mainstay of their might. So they were a fighting people. Now I need you, as before, before we look at the next verse, I just need to explain to you this biblical expression. It's the biblical expression of the four winds. Jesus used it. The gospel writers used it. Many of the Old Testament prophets used it. I think Zechariah used it. Daniel uses it. Jeremiah used it. Isaiah used it. It's called the, the expression of the four winds. As if there are four winds. So the Bible uses language in a way that it will often associate something as a word picture for something else, and that's called a metaphor. A metaphor is a word picture. And whenever the Bible speaks of earth, it often speaks of earth associated with the number four. It's, it's not whether you like that, it's not whether you agree with that, it just, it just does. And that's its language. It's the same kind of thing that happens in a marriage. The husband has to learn the language of his wife. You know, husband comes home, says, is there anything wrong, dear? And she says, no. Now, every husband knows what that means. Thank you. And so you eventually you learn the language of your wife. And I'm encouraging you to do the same. Oh, I may, should maybe not have said what I just said before, because now the women are going. Anyway, I'm, I'm picking up a cold vibe. But anyway, let's proceed. So it, it speaks of all the earth. And so... The other thing, too, is it talks about the four winds of heaven. And, and, and that's an expression to say that in heaven, and this is how Jews referred to God as coming from heaven or, or heaven, that it's, when it's the four winds of heaven, it means this. God is doing something in the earth. God is doing something in the earth. So with that in mind, the earth doesn't necessarily mean, you know, Antarctica or USA or Tasmania. It just means beyond the land of Israel, as we'll see. All right, so here's the verse, verse 36. And I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four quarters of heaven, and I will scatter them, that is the Elamites, to all those winds, and there shall be no nation to which those driven out of Elam shall not come. Now, I'm going to just jump kind of almost to a concluding comment and say, 
I, I can, I think, pretty readily show you that God is scattering people from the Middle East around the world. And this whole refugee thing, and I know that, that there are some people who, are, who just associate uh, Iranians with terrorists. But that's a mistake. It's a huge mistake. Because many of these Iranians are actually Christians. Now, I am jumping the gun a bit to where I want to go with this, but I just want to just flag that in case you drift off and think of something else. Just, I just want to put that little sticky note on your thinking at the moment. And I'm going I'm to suggest to you that God has and is still today fulfilling that prophecy of scattering these people to the ends of the earth. But I think he had something in mind. And, and here's... Here's the big deal, and, and I, I, we, again, I need to make this point before we look at the next verse, and it's this. When a nation forsakes God, they risk being gripped by terror. It's not just a word I'm going to impose on the text. In fact, if you have Bible software and you do a search, just search the word terror, and look how often it's associated with God orchestrating it, God doing it. Not that he's a terrorist. It's, it's as if you forsake me, I will lift my hand of protection. I will lift my hand of blessing. I will lift my hand from off you as a nation. And when I do, the, the inevitable consequence is that you will be terrified by your enemies. Now, I don't want to be oversimplistic about this, but it is an uncanny thing when you look at Scripture how often... Terror is associated with a nation turning its back on God. So can I just say, while we think sometimes of the mission fields as the deepest, darkest jungles of Africa or Asia or South America or the far-flung norths of China or Mongolia, I tell you that the, the, the most needy mission fields are fast becoming the former bastions of Christianity in Europe. Can I tell you, France needs Jesus. Holland needs Jesus. And while we've long thought of these countries as having a foundation in Christianity, I think those days zoomed past a long time ago and we have nations now that are doing things that bear no resemblance to Christianity. And I wonder if God's going to raise up missionaries from within this church to be sent not just as we did a couple of weeks ago, not just to the far-flung outback territories of Australia. And that's where we sent Reese and Jody, and we're supporting them each month as they reach Aboriginals. But I think fastly or quickly or rapidly we're seeing the whole game changed and we need to see once again nations like France and Germany and Holland and Sweden and Norway and Finland come to Christ and for someone to take a gospel interest in them. So this verse, verse 37, with that in mind, it says this, I will terrify Elam before their enemies and before those who seek their life. I will bring disaster upon them. My fierce anger declares the Lord. I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. Remember when Jeremiah got this prophecy? It's not now. He said, I got this the year the moment, the, the, the beginning when Zedekiah began to reign, I got this. Why? Because 
when the Babylonians came in and initially, as we saw them, pulling the temple apart, it was Elamites carrying out those things from the temple. And Jeremiah gets this word and he holds it for 40, maybe 50 years. He holds that prophecy. And now he puts it down for all to see in the infallible, inerrant, immovable word of God. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to show you, I hope to show you, this prophecy was indeed fulfilled. Now let me make this point before we read the next verse. Because you'll notice this passage, it finishes up in verse 39 as giving an amazing promise to the Elamites. There's only, as we've seen, not every nation gets the promise of restoration. The Elamites do. So again, track with me. Wherever God is worshipped and obeyed, which I, I almost didn't put the word obey in there because I didn't think it's necessary, because if he is worshipped, he is obeyed. Because you can't say, I worship you, God, and then go out and swear and get drunk and, and abuse the one you claim to love and say, I'm a worshipper of God. It doesn't work like that. Worship is not just Sunday. Worship is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And so at the risk of tautology, which is saying the same thing with a different word after you've just said it, let me say this again, wherever God is worshipped and obeyed, it is there that he sets his throne. Psalm 22 says, you, O God, are enthroned on the praises of your people. When we worship God, we're establishing a throne. When you worship God in your heart, you're establishing a throne. Worship and obedience establishes a throne. With that in mind, let's read the next verse. And I will set my throne in Elam. Remember, he's already said he's going to summon the wind, so this is going to happen on a windy day. And destroy their king and officials, declares the Lord. Hmm. You see, I've told you that these people were essentially monotheistic, but this king had been introducing idolatry. And so God says he's going to take action. Wherever God is worshipped and obeyed, it is there that he sets his throne. Remember the capital of Elam? Remember the first bunch of people that went out with, with Jehoiakim to Babylon? It was Daniel and, and those guys who became Shadrach and Meshach. They were taken. And eventually as they grew up, Daniel proved himself to be a noble who was reliable and trustworthy. And so we read that, that, that not only did he convert Nebuchadnezzar, that guy, that angry guy, not only did he convert him to worship the one true God, but he, was, he made such an impression on Darius that he was appointed to be the governor of the, a governor of the empire. And his, his territory was the territory of Elam. And his government house was in Susa. And from Susa, he opened his window that looked toward Jerusalem and he bowed and he worshipped the God of Israel. And you might remember the story for that 
He was thrown into a lion's den. But it happened in Susa when he was the governor of Elam. He was on his knees worshipping God. He was on his knees obeying God. What does God do wherever he's worshipped and obeyed? He establishes and sets his throne. And so we read in Daniel chapter 8, verse 2, And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa. The citadel, or the place where the governor's house is, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. Now the whole point is there, it's not to talk about what he saw, it's to tell you where he was and what he was doing. He was worshipping God. He was taken to a place that was so hard, so dark, and yet one man worshipping God was enough for God to set his throne in Elam. Tick. Prophecy fulfilled. And I think we need to know this, because in the midst of a dark and desperate period and place, and can I say we are fast becoming that, God raised up a young man, and Daniel maybe would have been 15 years of age when God sent him to Babylon. But he raised up a young man who was prepared to worship him despite what the crowd said, despite what his mates wanted him to do, despite the peer pressure, despite what everyone was telling him was cool and don't be a... Oh, come on. Come on. One won't hurt. He was prepared to say, no. Not about being me and religious, boys. I just want to love God with all my heart, all my mind, all my strength and all my soul. And if I'm the only one doing it, I'm prepared to do it. That's what Daniel... Did. And Daniel was inspired by the prophet Jeremiah. We know that because he took with him scrolls of the prophet Jeremiah. And we read about that in Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and on, where he says, I was reading the writings of the prophet Jeremiah. And so, inspired by Jeremiah, not just his writings, but by Jeremiah, he was prepared to be a witness to the living God and for the one true God. And one day, that witness that he sowed into those people would reap a harvest. And one day, men from that region would travel east looking for the birth of the Messiah. Verse 39. Here's the last verse of this section, and then we're we're pretty much done. We're in the home stretch. But in the latter days, I will restore the fortunes of Elam, declares the Lord. How will he do that? Well, I'm going to suggest to you he had something in mind. You see, when you are extracted from God, when you are turning your back on God, life can get very hard. It can get very frustrating. But Daniel's witness to the Elamites caused them to go, wait a minute, maybe this concept of God we've got is not quite right. Maybe Daniel's got a greater concept. And many of them began to seek after the God that Daniel was promoting. Many of them became open. And many of them converted to Judaism because of Daniel. How do you, Pastor, how do you know that? Well, I'll... Thank you for asking. I appreciate you asking. And let me just tell you, show you before I make that point that I'm going to say from what I see in Scripture, it is always God's heart, always God's heart, to redeem and restore even those who rebel against him. So even though the Elamites were hard and angry and military people who did great evil, and, and defied God, God wanted. His heart was to redeem and restore them. And we see in this verse that he promises to do that. And we, we need to understand that God's repairing, 
God's redeeming, God's rescuing and restoring always happens when a person turns to Jesus Christ. There's one word that captures all those are words. Salvation. God saves. Jesus saves. When you turn to Jesus, he repairs, he redeems, he rescues, he restores. And for the Elamites, their rescuing happened on the day of Pentecost and it is still happening today. There are people who still identify today as Elamites. And we read this in Acts chapter 2 verse 9 and the whole context, I'm just going to assume you know, but it's the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's been poured out. Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit's poured out. The Holy Spirit's poured out. People began to prophesy and speak in tongues. People who were filled with the Holy Spirit lay hands on people. They get healed. Crippled people stand up. Blind people see. Dead people are raised back to life. This is a pretty weird day. And this is what it says. They stood up and they began to proclaim to all Jerusalem in the language that they'd never learned. But in the language of these people, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Elamites heard Jews speaking Elamitish about Jesus. And thousands of them turned to Christ. And that began a movement of Elamite Christians. And if you Google it today, you'll be fascinated to discover there's entire websites set up for Elamite Christians today. They still reach into that south region of Iran. They identify as Elamites. And there is a revival happening there today. People turning to Christ. Where's that prophecy tick pen? We need to tick that one off. Jeremiah got it right. It is extraordinary. So now, here's, thank you for your patience. Let me just make two points and then we're done. And here it is. There may be people here today and you're like Jeremiah. Seriously, you're a young man. You could be 13, 14, 15 and you know God, you love God. Your heart aches over the condition and the soul condition of your friends and you want to do something about it. You could be a Daniel. God's going to raise you, not necessarily be a preacher or a, or a missionary, but he's going to raise you in a position of power in, perhaps in government or bureaucracy and yet you love God. You love God. So let me talk to the Daniels and the Jeremiahs in conclusion. Those who sometimes despair at our world, just utterly discouraged at where this world is going, Because of the hardness and the darkness that we see all around us, here it is. God's light in you is always going to shine brighter the more the darkness envelops you. God places Jeremiah's and Daniel's into the darkest places because that's exactly the one he needs in that place. And if you are on the verge of going, oh, I hate my job, Oh, my job. They are getting more and more unchristian. The other day they sneezed and they didn't even say, bless you. (laughs) Apart from the fact you need to harden up, maybe God's got you in there because he needs a light in there and you're it. And God will always call a servant to witness for him in the midst of this kind of hardness and darkness. Always. So if you find it hard, you find it frustrating, you find that at times you're despairing, you're probably in the right place. Because that's what we read about how Jeremiah felt continually. Now let me flip that. 
Let me flip that to the Elamites that are here today. No matter how lost, no matter how lonely, no matter how broken, no matter how damaged or disillusioned you are with life, with people, with church, with others, you need to know this. Jesus saves. Remember all those words? Rescues, restores, redeems, recovers, saves. Jesus still saves. And this is where I want to close. I want to close with prayer. And this is my question as I do. Will you surrender to God? I'm not asking you to join this church. I'm not asking you to become religious. I'm just asking you to do something in your heart right now. And you may be even going, golly, what? boy, this caught me off guard. I don't even know where any of this has come from. Then all I'm going to do is ask you to do this. In your heart, just say, God, is any of this true? Do you really have a plan for my life? Can you really bring the kind of peace that my mind craves? Can you really settle my heart like this guy's talking about? God, if you're real, can you make yourself known to me? I dare you to pray that. If you do that, and that's all you do in response to what I've said today, my job's done. But maybe you're here and maybe you're a Jeremiah and you've been running. Maybe you're a Daniel and you've been running. Will you invite him to set up his throne in your heart? Will you? The choice is ours, surrender to God or forsake Him. But know that it is always God's heart to redeem, restore, even those who rebel against Him. More from Dr. Corbett next week, Proclaim and Conceal It Not. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, I Will Set My Throne in Elam, are available via the website findingtruthmatters.org or by contacting us at Lagana Media. PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. For updates and special offers, please visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr. Corbett is pastor of the Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.